When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Forever Dog I used to think that this was my town What a stupid thing to think I hear you biting off a brain down I myself am on the brain I used to want to be a real man What's up, three beats? that even means butcher I just feel like saying three beats today. Hope everybody's doing all right. It's an interesting day today. You can talk about baseball. Anybody want to talk about baseball? Um, My fantasy baseball league, I'm tied for first. Everything else, I have no idea how it's going. <laughs> it's funny how you can like care about fantasy baseball and then you like get to a place where you're like, oh, I did it. And then everything else falls apart. So... <laughs> Um, that's kind of where I'm at. Maybe that's why I just said three base and nothing else. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this, this podcast is, has been nothing but, uh, honesty for me for the most part without getting, you know, too into detail of things. Cause I think you got to keep, you know, boundaries and stuff there. But like, man, sometimes you're just sad. You know, I did, uh, I did my stand up show, put your hands together for the first time in a little minute. And I, I said like, I'm sad, but not like comedy sad because <laughs> um, I feel like so many people talk about how sad they are all the time that it just becomes like a comedy thing. It's like a topic in comedy. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to be real with all of you. I'm sad. And, uh, you know, I'm taking steps to work on it and just like be in it. But man, it's it's tough sometimes. So if you're sad right now and uh, or you've been sad, like I feel you. I see you, I hear you, I feel you. Um, Cause I'm just like very in it. And uh, you know, it's that kind where it's like in your body, you know, I'm just eating bananas and protein bars, like just enough to get through a day, which is not enough. <laughs> Definitely not enough. I almost passed out of my baseball game two weeks ago. Cause I just didn't eat. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, I have friends in my life, so please no one call any numbers on me right now. I'm, uh, I wouldn't be putting it on a podcast if I wasn't taking care of myself, but, um, yeah, I mean, I've, it's gotten to the point where like, I just, uh, I mean, uh, th- this podcast was 15 minutes last week. Um, cause it was the, it was the minimum I could get out of myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, I don't, I literally don't know what to say about it. You know? Um, it's just like grief which is a real big feeling and um i've gone through big grief before and uh it it does get better but uh it's one of those stages where like i don't want it to get better because i know what it getting better means and it's not that i want to stay in sadness it's just that the other side of it can is unknown so um yeah you just don't it's just it's just difficult. So I appreciate everybody that's listening to this and not judging 
And if you are judging, like, I get it. You're a human being too. Um, but I'm like personally working on not determining so much of my life based on what other people think, because I recently realized how much I do that. And, uh, I, I had no idea cause I thought I like knew who I was and felt good with who I am. And like, for the most part I do, but there was even more underneath that, that I had no idea was still there. And I mean, I guess that's life, you know, where you're just like continually excavating, unless you're not, unless you choose not to. Um, but I, I have, you know, in the past years of my life chosen to stay on a path of excavating. And sometimes you take a break and then the break is very painful from your excavation. Um, because getting back into it is harder than getting out of it. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to stay on that path and be okay, but it's hard. It's hard to stay okay, you know? And, uh, self-care is like a real thing, you know? I think we talk a lot about like self-care being like Netflix and a bottle of wine. And like, obviously I can't do that. <laughs> and obviously I don't want to do that. Um, but I just don't want to, you know, like detach and I don't want to float away. Um, but that means I have to be like sad and do my job sometimes. Um, so, you know, that's the, the thing is you have to listen to it. So I just, uh, I just have gotten to the point this week where I can't, I can't not say it sitting in my apartment recording this podcast that I care about, um, with people who listen to it, who care, you know, it's just not doable where I can just go like, yeah, baseball. Okay, great. So I'm taking a chance at being, you know, honest and, uh, open about that in the hopes that it's like, just okay. So, um, I hope that it's just okay. And I hope that everybody's doing all right out there and I am hanging in there and it is just like one day at a time and I can't, do any more than that because it's impossible so i'll be right back after this with some baseball stuff thanks for still being here really appreciate it uh let's get into some baseball stuff so that i can talk about that instead of other things uh, big trade news. Edwin Encarnacion was traded to the Yankees. In this week's installment of The Rich Getting Richer, the home run happy Yankees completed a trade on Saturday for the Mariners' Edwin Encarnacion, the AL leader in home runs with 21. Great job, Cleveland. One more time. Encarnacion joins a team that includes the AL's third leading slugger, Gary Sanchez, and is about to call up both Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge from rehab assignments. Stanton started in Tuesday's game against Tampa Bay, and Judge is expected to return as early as this weekend. So bench coach Brett wants to know how much does the acquisition of Encarnacion move the arrow for the Yankees? Does this outweigh their failure to sign Kimbrell or Keuchel? Do they come out of last week's flurry of free agent signings and trades in a better place, or will the, their pitching issues undermine, or will their pitching issues undermine their power hitters? 
Um, and he also adds, just FYI, as soon as I wrote this, ESPN published an article titled, Yankees rotation shows signs of straightening itself out. So what do I know? A couple highlights from that article. After watching their team ERA balloon in June, the Yankees starters have sw- strung together a small string of dominating performances in recent days, punctuated by Mashiro Tanaka's two-hit shutout of Tampa Bay on Monday. Even so, the Yankees' still largely anemic rotation remains in need of some help, and it ought to receive an upgrade ahead of the trade deadline. I mean, I think that, you know, I have said the Yankees, I don't know. And I think that we still have to see how Giancarlo and Aaron Judge perform on their way back into Major League Baseball because Giancarlo more... I mean, they're both strikeout guys. So you just have to get over that hump. However, and when Encarnacion already hit a home run for the Yankees... They're already doing well. And I think that this, in terms of morale, boosts them very highly. And I put them way much higher up for favorites to get to the World Series. And it changes my mind a lot. I mean, they will pick up arms at the trade deadline. Who will they get? I don't know. Um, Did they need Kimbrel or Keuchel? Maybe. But I think that, I don't know if you score 14 runs in a game. I don't know if it matters if your starter gives up seven. And I would not usually say something like that. But... In this case, they hit a lot of home runs, and two-hit shutouts are real. So I feel like the Yankees are a dominant threat, and are my my Tampa Bay prediction is fading fast, and I was probably wrong about that, but hey, you know, it's okay. Sometimes we say things, and then we're wrong, you know? It happens. Um, and you just have to sort of accept it and be like, well, whatever. I didn't kill anybody um i just said i thought the tampa bay rays would win but i don't think they will now um so the yankees are looking very 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 good and i mean the the boston red sox are pulling back in you know like they're they're playing better but um you know the yankees just have like a domination that is yankee like in form you know so it's like the oh the yankees have become the yankees again so you better watch out when the yankees are the yankees because the Yankees are the Yankees now, so watch out for those Yankees. <laughs> um, and speaking of another team rising, we have Atlanta on the rise in the NL East. So after a dominant 12-3 victory over the Mets on Monday that included 16 hits and home runs from Acuna Ron- Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, and Brian McCann. Atlanta has now won 10 of their last 11 games, a stretch that includes five one-run wins and blowout wins of 14 runs, nine runs, and twice by seven runs. As a result, Atlanta currently sits in first place in the NL East, three games ahead of Philadelphia, which, again, I was wrong about this. Fine to be wrong. Not to mention they have the third highest run differential at plus 48 behind only the Dodgers and the Cubs. A main reason behind Atlanta's rise has been the emergence of 21-year-old Ronald Acuna Jr. and 22-year-old Second baseman, Ozzie Albies, which, hey, this is the story from last year, as bonafide stars cementing their performance last year, joining perennial all-star Freddie Freeman to form a powerful core. Acuna is slashing 301, 380, 519 on the year with 17 home runs and 49 RBIs. And Albies is slashing 357, 439, 696 with four home runs, 15 RBI, and a 68 strikeout bases on balls rate over his past 15 games. That is a 
lot of heat. Uh, plus the continued development of right fielder Nick Markakis and the surprise rise of shortstop Dansby Swanson, who has already surpassed his home run output for the entirety of last season, gives Atlanta a versatile lineup of tough outs from top to bottom. Albies hits in, in the eighth slot most nights. And on the mound, Mike Soraka has developed into a reliable ace with an 8-1 record and a 2.12 ERA on the year. Soraka has also been a portrait of efficiency, throwing only 68 pit- pitches across six innings in Monday's win over the Mets. Plus, Atlanta just formed just signed former Cy Young winner Dallas Keuchel to round out the rotation. So it looks like Mike Soraka in the running for a Cy Young this year, and then they did just get Dallas Keuchel to round out their rotation. He brings some veteran leadership, and he's been to the World Series recently, which is something I think Atlanta desperately needs someone that's been there in the past three years um, because nobody on their team has. Well, Brian McCann. So they've got Brian McCann and Dallas Keuchel. That's two. That's a battery leadership, which I think is incredibly valuable. And I also think in, in terms of the NL East, I mean, Philly, like, you know, they got Bryce Harper. He's striking out a lot. He's not proving to be what they thought he was going to be. I still like that team. But Gabe Kepler, I think, is a terrible manager. And I, I have a lot of things against that guy that are off the field things. But I also think he's a bad manager because I, I just don't see how you can't win more games with what you've got. Um, And I think that guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I, I think it's fascinating that people with almost no experience in playing baseball get to manage major, men's major league baseball. But that might be a whole nother episode. Um, So, I mean, I, I think Atlanta's got what it takes to... I mean, they made it last year and they just ran into the Dodgers and couldn't do it. Um, but it seems like they've fortified a little bit more and they've, you know, they got that far last year. And so now they're going to want it a little bit more. Um, and, you know, the Dodgers want the World Series. And so that's going to be a big clash if we see them in the NLCS, which it could be, or we will see the Cubs in that mix. Um, so you've got some very hungry NL teams wanting to get there and and do it. And then you've got the Yankees on the other side of the equation, plus the Twins who are just like, nobody's talking about the Twins. I mean, we've talked about the Twins, but nobody's consistently talking about the Twins. Um, they're just uh, a similar Atlanta situation where it's just up and down the lineup productive. Um, and then they've got Jake Odorizzi uh, just thoroughly freezing batters every game. So... It's exciting. It's an exciting June. It's exciting. I'm curious to see how the all-star break shakes out and what happens after that, who cools down, who speeds up, who stays the course. It'll be really interesting to see. And I think, um, you know, the Cody Bellinger season is something that, man, I'm just like, how does the all-star break affect this? And please, God, Cody Bellinger, do not do the home run derby. Please don't do it. I don't think he will. I feel like probably everyone is telling him don't do this. And he already did it once. He doesn't need to do it again. Um, Have the home run derby be your season, you know? Like, just go to the all-star game, have a good time, keep your head in there, keep doing what you're doing, make those adjustments, and, like, don't change a thing, kid. You know what I mean? Um... And with that being said, we'll be right back and uh, come back with a little talk about a little balk talk after this. All right. So the other night, Kenley Jansen pulled an intentional balk 
Uh, one of the more interesting moments for men's baseball last week was when Kenley Jansen intentionally balked. That's right, balked, not walked, in the ninth inning of last Friday's game against the Cubs to move Jason Hayward from second base to third base. Um, in case you don't know, a balk is an illegal act by the pitcher when one or more runners are on base. The rule is in place to prevent a pitcher from deceiving the base runners. There are many movements that constitute a balk, but in general, it's any motion naturally de- associated with a pitching delivery that doesn't result in a pitch. When a balk is called, the ball is dead and all r- runners move up one base. As far as anyone can tell, Jansen's balk was the first intentional balk in MLB history. At the time, the Dodgers were up 5-3 to three with two outs, and Hayward was on second base. Jansen told the Dodgers infield that he was going to balk and then tapped his foot several times on the rubber and pointed at third base, at which point the balk was called and Hayward was forced to take third. Although Jansen and the Dodgers have been a little tight-lipped about their strategy, the obvious reasons seem to be, one, to prevent Hayward from seeing and stealing the catcher's signs, and two, to reduce distraction by putting Hayward on a more tightly guarded base where he doesn't have the ability to dance around and draw Jansen's attention. In addition, with a two-run lead in the ninth, Hayward representing essentially a meaningless run, and assuming that he scores on a hit from either second or third, the extra base also doesn't make a significant difference. Um, And bench coach Brett wants to know what I think about the intentional balk as a strategy, and why in the era of shift and starting reliever haven't we seen this before? I mean, I feel like we'll be seeing it a lot more now, because somebody did it. And, um, I mean, stealing signs... it's Stealing signs is one of those things where you're like, which is worse, that they're stealing the signs or that you think they're stealing the signs? And that is a tough one to manage. And clearly, it got in Kenley Jansen's head enough that he felt like he had to do something about it. So I feel like if you have to do something about it, you should do something about it. Because if it's in there and it's hurting you, you can't manage it alone. And so you've got to push it, put it out and move them over. And if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And it worked out. Um, and I feel like if intentional box become a thing and they start doing it, we will get a new rule about it. <laughs> but stealing signs are illegal, you know, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, but it's a tale as old as time. And they've been doing We've Baseball's been doing it since baseball started. You know, once there were signs, you could steal them. So it's just something teams live with and live around and you know Kenley Jansen figured out a way around it that felt good for him and they got out of it and they won the game so you know I guess you got to do what you got to do you know and you got to protect yourself so um I mean I think we'll probably see it a lot more and I'm I'm not sure why we haven't seen it before I guess pride probably pitchers not wanting to like give someone a free pass but uh Kenley was doing the math and realizing like it's kind of not a big deal if because he'd probably score on a hit anyway so I'm gonna move him over and I'm not gonna give up a hit you know Kenley Jansen is the guy that has so often said hey you don't want to see bat flips throw more strikeouts you know so he seems like just a very like hey I'm gonna do what I need to do to get out of this thing and I don't I don't really care what it looks like um which is kind of a good way to go around you know we'll be back with an interview with one of my favorite baseball journalists Brittany De La Creata, right after this. Oh man, I am so excited about this guest. Finally on the show, one of my favorite writers out there. What's up, Brittany De La Creata? I did it, right? Is that close? Creta? Pretty close. Pretty De La Creta. De La Creta. God, you just, she just said it to me and then I couldn't do it. 
I apologize. I'm sorry. Don't I, be I, I, I get worried about what it's going to be and then I make the wrong decision. Um, how are you? How are things? How's your life? Life is good. Great. Cool. Well, I wanted to have you on to discuss your article, um, which and it came out last year, right? It did for the 75th anniversary right. of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Yeah, the hidden queer history behind A League of Their Own, um, which is kind of the movie, but kind of kind of also the league. It's kind of funny how those two things have become synonymous, even though one of them is purely fictional. <laughs> it's true, and I'll tell you that when I pitch stories about it i have to have the league of their own hook right. because editors otherwise nobody that. knows what it is yeah. yeah that's wild uh trust me i've been down that road um and we actually hung out in rockford illinois for the 75th anniversary of the peaches first game um and that was a lot of fun right it was it was the tournament the nationals baseball for all nationals yeah and the, but but were we there separately for the other thing too weren't you there for that I was not there. For oh, that. you were not there for that. I'm putting it. Never mind. Anyway, but do you know why you thought I was there for that? Is because the article dropped right around then, and people were got talking. It. About yeah, it. got it. That is why I just put them all together. So, how did the article come together? Like, was this something that you just became aware of and you wanted to put out there, or, or how did it come come about? Yeah. So, uh, I'll say that for anyone who's read the article, there's a lot of relatively newly reported information in it, stuff that hasn't uh, been written about before. And I didn't know that I was going to find all that. So I had initially pitched it as um, talking about some of the homophobic pieces and the ways that um, players had been prevented from being perceived as lesbians or, you know, being openly gay at the time. It was common knowledge to me. It's in a lot of the books uh, that have been written about the league, but I don't think it's common knowledge to people who do not know as much about it as maybe you or I might. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I had pitched it thinking that I was going to mostly be rehashing stuff that had already been reported by other people. And maybe I'd uncover like one new thing that would be there. Uh, and that's that's how it started. And that's how I pitched it. Cool. Um, and so like what kind of because something that's interesting to me, just even a sort of like pedestrian understanding of like the article it almost I think of like the sort of knee jerk that maybe I've experienced my whole life. And then there's like the internalized homophobia of it that it's like, well, duh, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but that dehumanizes in a way where it's like because because you're not actually acknowledging the fact that the league actively tried to make sure no one seemed that way, whether they were or not, you know, with the the like, um, you know, the. <laughs> what is it like the debutante training and like makeup and all of that stuff, you know? Um, but then like somebody just sort of thinking like, well, of course they're all gay. They're playing baseball. Um, and it like sort of removes this autonomy of the individual people, but it's something like, I remember the original number I heard being like 60% of the league, but it's more like 80% of the league identified or was like queer in some way. Yeah, and it's something we come across as someone who writes about women's sports and female athletes a lot. It's something and queerness, right? It's yeah, something right. I'm coming up all the time. I'm I'm working on a book about a football league from the 1970s, and most of those women were gay. And it's interesting to see the difference, um, you know, just 20, 30 years apart, that a lot of these women were out at the time, uh, which is you know something that's really different uh, from the All American Girls League. 
But and I mean a thirty-year difference, so there's that to, to you know that whole absolutely. thing. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that thirty years, but um, in t- I'm talking to a lot of those women now, and you know, I the football women, of, yeah, the football yeah, women, and cool. queer history is important to me. That's going to be a piece of the book, right? And they're all like, you know, I get on the phone, and one of them's like, "Well, you knew we were all gay, right?" <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, but then at the same time, you you don't want to stereotype because there's so many female athletes that aren't queer. Um, so it's definitely something I think about a lot in my own writing and how to walk that line of, I think acknowledging my elders, my history, that queer history that exists and making it visible because I think often we're invisibilized, um, particularly in the past and also not by like, uh, leaning too hard on stereotypes or assumptions. Yeah. And also this sort of like, uniqueness that someone can't you know be more than their sexuality or something that like precedes everything but also visibility it's like it's such a tightrope to walk you know where it's like you want to talk about this thing but you want them to also be the athletes that they are separate from that but that's you know it's impossible when you have like a society that resides in one space which is like heteronormativity when that's like the assumed thing um which is interesting to me because like men suffer from the stereotype that they're all straight (laughs) you know like male athletes are all straight uh but female athletes and i'm speaking in the binary because that's part of the problem of it um are all gay you know and it's like a total erasure of individuals yeah and i think when we talk about female athletes in particular so much of their queerness has had to be erased, like you mentioned, charm school and the lipstick and all of that. And of course, there's femme queer women, but there's also, you know, butch women and androgynous women and people who are all over, you know, the spectrum. And for a really long time, you know, female athletes have been forced into this box of really having to play up ideas of uh, heteronormative beauty um, and it really pander to the male gaze. Uh, and that's been just like part of what being a female athlete in public has been for a really long time. Yeah. The whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Still. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of like, um, you know, like tenderness that I found in that article. And like, so what was your experience putting it together? Thank you. I really like that word. Uh, I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to write about it as someone who wanted the women to be seen for who they were um, and how they lived. And I also wanted to be respectful because, um, you know, I'm writing about a different time and a different era. And as you know, there are uh, players living today who still don't want to talk about it. People who don't want to talk about whether it's themselves or other people at all. And they'll just sort of shut it down with, well, we didn't talk about that. So I was really wanting to make sure that I wasn't outing anyone. Um, that would not have wanted to be the names I give are people whose obituaries made were made clear that they were in these relationships. There's, uh, and I had to make a lot of the decisions. I had maybe like 11 other names that I ended up cutting out because I didn't have time to check with family members. Um, and I just, I didn't want to do something that would have felt disrespectful or even bordered on that. So uh, there was really a lot of considerations in reporting this of how do I respect them for who they were um, and and how they would have wanted to be perceived. Absolutely. Um, what was like what was like your favorite part of putting this together? 
Like what made you, uh, I don't know, like what made you happy? Was there a discovery that like made you feel seen or, you know, just something that you were like, oh, people need to know about this. Yeah. So there were two. And one was the discovery of the obituaries um, because I was reading a book. It's by uh, Lynn Ames and it's called Bright Lights of Summer. It's historical fiction and it's about Dot Wilkinson mm-hmm. um, and softball during the same time period. And I sort of was like, this book probably doesn't have anything to help me, but I'm going to read it anyway. And right in the first chapter, the narrator of the book is meeting one of the former players later in life and uh, mentions that she'd been reading obituaries and, and had a question. And I thought, well, could it be that simple? Could it all, could it actually like be there? And I started searching for obituaries that mentioned the league. And it was really that simple. There were so many right there, it, like opened the entire story up, which, um, is nice because they're public documents too. And it makes clear like it, it was, those relationships were publicly honored already. Um, so it made the choice for me to decide to use them a little bit easier, mm-hmm. um, in those cases. But I was like, Oh my God, it's all right there. <laughs> so, um, that was a really cool moment. Once I realized that, I think I stayed up until like five in the morning looking <laughs> up obituaries oh, wow. because I like couldn't stop. Yeah. And the other moment was when I got to talk to Pat Henschel, who's the longtime partner of Terry Donahue, who just passed. And um, they are are having a documentary made about their life. I don't know when it's going to run or anything, but I got in touch with the league and asked to be in touch with them. And they were like, okay, yeah, sure. We'll pass it along. Um, (laughs) And I didn't expect anything. And I was like, cooking dinner for my kids and I got a call and I never answer unknown numbers even though I'm a journalist and I for some reason picked it up and this woman is like hi this is Pat Henschel and I was like oh my god wow <laughs> so I like threw food at my kids and like sure. ran into the other room um to take the call um and that was a really cool moment too yeah what was it like talking to that person um I loved you know the tenderness with speaking of that word that she spoke about Terry with and Terry had Parkinson's, um, but they were together for over 70 years and um, they met when Terry was playing. uh, She was a catcher in the league. And so, you know, she had been with her through that process and um, throughout the relationship, I've found new stories that refer to them as cousins, um, (laughs) you know, longtime roommates, um, one, I saw another best friend is what the league had initially, you know, told me, uh, when I got in touch with them. So they had various relationship, uh, terms over the years in public. But, um, what I loved about talking to her is she sort of said, you know, we came to this place of like, if people care, like that's on them at this point in our lives, we've been together so long. Um, and we don't want to not talk about it because, um, it was just the love in her voice was really, it was really sweet. Oh, that's really powerful. <laughs> so it like, really, yeah, it cool. yeah, that's very cool. Um, so, so what's your hope, um, like moving forward? I know you're, you're writing a book. Um, so let, you want to like share with everybody what that book is going to look like generally? Sure. Um, I'm writing it with Lindsay Darkangelo who is another uh, sports writer, another queer sports writer. And it's about the National Women's Football League, which is the first professional women's football league in the U.S. It uh, was in, mostly in the 1970s. Um, and there were 12 league or 12 teams in the league at its high point. 
Um, and there's one team in particular that's, I think, the most well-known in like women's sports history circles, which is uh, the Toledo Troopers, who are the winningest team in pro football history, men's or women's. Um, and what struck me when I started to research that team for a story, I actually wrote about the first time the winningest team ever lost a game uh, mm-hmm. six years into their existence, which wow. was fun to report. What was amazing about that is I talked to women on both teams. They played a team called the Oklahoma City Dolls. And these women, it's been 45 years and they were giving me play by play. I'm sure. Like, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but that there were all these other teams that had played. And when I would look up stuff there, no one had really talked to most of these women. Um, and so me and Lindsay have decided that we want to, and we've started <laughs> tracking them down. That's great. Um, and it's great. We're telling the story of, against the backdrop of Title IX and Battle of the Sexes and um, the queer movement and all of those things that were sort of happening at that moment. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to, you know, put it in that context. And it's been really uh, fun to report so far. So that's very cool. And uh, I mean, I guess I would just sort of end it with uh, like... I don't know, like, what is your hope for, like, queerness and representation in, like, sports in general? You know, like, like, what are you, what are you hopeful and looking forward to? And what's, what's, like, making, making you happy? Uh, lately, the WNBA is making me really happy. <laughs> Great, yeah. Um, I, I, you even wrote an article for the New York Times this week about the WNBA, right? I did. It was about how uh, players and even the league itself are using social media to uh, be more accepting and celebratory of masculine of center fashion looks uh, on their players. That's really great. So that's in the New York Times. Everybody should check that out. Yeah. More additional notes. And part of it is the queerness. And I actually, so I think that fits into like what my hope is to, I want to keep uncovering the stories from the past. Um, because I think that that's really important. And I think that if we don't document and tell our history while we can, that it, it gets untold. And so, you know, that piece is really important to me as a journalist and a researcher. But what I love about the WNBA is it's giving us a glimpse of maybe what the future for queer female athletes can look like. Um, or just, you know, queer athletes in general, because they have in recent years, and it wasn't, you know, and they also had makeup classes. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But in recent years, there has been this, um, they've just let their players be who they are, and not just like tolerated it, but celebrated it and started to like promote them um, as they are, whether it's their relationships or you know, like a more butch aesthetic or whatever it is. Um, and they've allowed them to take on activism off the court that they will help them push. And, and it's on, just, it seems like, too. <laughs> yeah. You yes. know. Yeah. Media blackouts. Like yeah. all of that. Um, and I really hope that other sports leagues can follow suit because I think not only it's better for the players to not have to hide and suppress who they are. I think it also not only helps fans see themselves in players, but I think it creates more authentic connections on and off the court between fans and players who, whether a fan is queer or not, just getting to see your favorite athlete for who they are, um, I think creates a more authentic experience too. Yeah. It's a really wonderful time. I feel like. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like sometimes it's like, oh, it's so many things are so frustrating. But then you realize like, yeah, you look to the WNBA, you look to women's national soccer and you're like, oh, wow, this is like a really exciting time to be alive. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to remember that sometimes, you know? Yeah. Women's national soccer is another place where I think women's soccer overall still has a long way to go. But sure. there's these amazing, you know, women Within. on the yeah on the team who are really just pushing forward. Absolutely. And shout out to uh, women's hockey also just to, to not, not forget anybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brittany, it was so great to have you on the show. So happy to have you here and uh, talk about the, the queerness in the all American girls professional baseball league for pride month. Yes. Happy pride. Happy pride. Have a great one, Brittany. Thanks so much. You too. Wasn't that such a wonderful interview with Brittany? She's so talented, so wonderful. I love this article when it came out last year. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to her about it. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, please check it out on narratively.com. It's called The Hidden Queer History Behind A League of Their Own. And please also check out the rest of Brittany's work. It's wonderful. She covers all kinds of sports in general, women's, men's, everything. Really great stuff. And, you know, support her in any way you can with retweets or money if you can afford it. Um, thanks so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. Um, please let somebody know about the show. Give us a review, rate, subscribe. Check out our Pride shirt, which is about 19 days late <laughs> to the store, but get that. You can wear it all year round because it's not just one month, you know? Um, so buy that on TeePublic. Um, as soon as it's available, you can support the show that way. And as always, if you liked it, you liked it. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarche. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. <laughs>